Our scripture reading is Genesis 26. Uh, go ahead and look that up for just a moment. <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 26. Uh, now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you've done? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, <clears throat> the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. <clears throat> from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. And they said, 
we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that had been dug and said to him, we've found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This is the word of the Lord. I truly believe that the most important thing that happens every day when we gather is what Anna just did opening the word of God with us. You think, that's a long passage, but yes, but it is the word of God. It is a story from God to you to hear today, to work in your soul and heart. Even thousands-year-old stories have relevance today, we're going to see. I was told by my wife I should address my Smurf hand because it's very distracting up here. You probably didn't even see it, but anyways, I, that's what you, when you have kids, it gets messy, and that's a blue Smurf hand. I wasn't playing with Smurfs, but ink. Um, Today, as we come to the word of the Lord, we get to ask this question. Bethany Church, what does it mean that God is present in our lives? Or the lives of these children, even, that we just dedicated up front? Or Or that God is present everywhere? Is there some difference as you think about the presence in your life as a follower of Christ compared to someone who doesn't follow Christ? Does he actively work differently through his presence in the lives of those who have faith in Jesus? What is God's presence? Is it just a feeling? You know, I really felt God's presence. I really felt him in the worship service today. Is that it? Is it like a blowing wind that Jesus talks about the Spirit? Is it a word in our mind that we just, we just know came from God's presence? How many people have gotten into trouble with that? Is God's presence, Jesus, sitting in the car next to you as you say, Jesus, take the wheel? You know, what is it? What's God's presence? Jeremiah says this as he speaks for God. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? This morning, we ask these questions about God's presence, questions that Isaac had to ponder during a very troubling situation where his entire family was at risk of death because of famine, lack of food, a famine that was in the land. You know, we've been working our way through our new series, The Life of Jacob, a story of struggle and grace. We take a brief interlude this morning into the life of Isaac, that's Jacob and Esau's father, as we heard about last week, but we kind of focus on him before we jump into Jacob and Esau proper next week. But this interlude is really important because the author of Genesis wants you and I to know, as he wanted the Hebrews, the Israelites to know and to understand that the blessing of Abraham upon Abraham, the man of faith, was being passed on to Isaac. It truly was. And then to Jacob in his life as he struggled for it. So here's our, here's our overarching question today. How much do you really believe 
that God is present with you all the time. Is it possible that you objectively believe that, but as you live out your life subjectively, you don't always live in faithful obedience in accordance with that fact? This morning we're going to examine both the promises and the presence, the presence of God and the faithful obedience these should engender. So we're going to look at five implications this morning of God's presence. Hopefully you got your outline. Grab it, get it open, keep your Bible open to Genesis 26, as mine is as well, as we begin to look at our first implication. Here's the first one. God sometimes tells you, tells us to stay put with his presence in places of famine. To stay put In the ancient world, it was not uncommon to have a famine due to to, to drought or to pestilence uh, coming along and destroying a crop. Or maybe a local tribe, there was a war and they they stole all your food. When that happened, you know, as I think thousands of years ago, you couldn't just go and get the, the, the meat out of the freezer. Just go get the, you know, the elk meat you forgot from last season. It's down there. It's deep. It's, oh, we got food. It's there. It's in the freezer. You just tied us over. You, you couldn't do that. If your food is gone in the ancient world, it's gone until the next growing season. Or how about water? You couldn't just turn on the tap when you were thirsty. If the well was dry or somebody filled in your well with dirt, as in our story, you couldn't turn on, on the tap. When you lived in an arid desert, without much vegetation or water, these resources are your life. And you feel it. You know it. You live or die based upon it. Well, in our story today, God tells Isaac to stay put in a famine. Stay put in a famine. When his life He lives or dies on the crop in the well, and he says, stay there. There's a parallel here. Maybe you caught it if you're thinking back to the life of Abraham. It's a parallel in these stories. There's a famine when Abraham was in the land as well. There was one. And he went down to Egypt to that fertile land, to, to the rich fertile land to find food. He took his family and they went. But here, Isaac is in Gerar. It's the southern portion of what would become the promised land, so a little bit north of Egypt, a much different climate and place, and God appears to him with his presence and says, stay put. Don't go. Don't leave. Sojourn here. Don't leave. Can you imagine Isaac's thoughts? Well, well, God, we're the promised covenant family. We're the promised family. We're the ones through whom the serpent crusher will come. You want me to put my family in danger? Danger of starving to death? There must have been a huge temptation to cut and run, to pick everything up and just just run from this famine and get down to Egypt to get food. Now, we don't live in a day, do we, where famine is a regular danger. In fact, most of the world doesn't anymore, and most of the food shortages in the world are more based upon political strife now than anything. Really, it's a different day today. But think in your life. When God has asked you to remain, 
to stay put in a place where it feels like a famine. You have lost something big, something dear, something that feels like life itself. Now that we can imagine. Something's dried up in your life. There's a famine and you just want to get out. You just want to escape. You just want to run. And I think that's our natural temptation. We, we tend to assume if things are getting tough, God must either not be in this or for sure he wants me to change locations. He wants me to get out of this. I mean, think of the cultural famine we are in right now. The loss of civility we're seeing. The loss of community and breakdown of communities. The loss of a moral compass for many. And because of this cultural famine, you hear about, and this is not necessarily wrong, but you're hearing a lot about Christians fleeing the cultural famine of liberal states. We just got to get out of here. Let's get to Texas, Idaho, somewhere, right? That's a, that's a common temptation to pick up and run. It's getting bad. We got to get out of here. When maybe God wants us to sojourn, to stay Maybe he has a plan for you when you stay put in a famine. Can we think that way? Can you think that way? Like Isaac. Or how about challenges in the church life? God bless those of you who have sojourned at Bethany. God bless you. In the past, through even some of our own difficult seasons as a church, some of you have stayed in years past through some really challenging seasons. You stayed. And God bless you for that. But some have said, we got to flee this famine. We have got to get out of you, out of here. Others of you, as I said, stayed. And God has blessed that, hasn't he? Think through that. How he has blessed your staying here. You stayed put in a time that felt like famine. Or how about relationship strife? This, just, this isn't working anymore. This is not working anymore. Maybe it's a sexual famine in a marriage or intimacy famine, or we just feel like the other person isn't meeting my needs. Or friendship famine, friendships that have dried up in drought. We have friendships in this church where this has happened. And we're tempted, aren't we? I know you are. I am too, to flee to greener pastures, the fertile soil of Egypt, rather than have the hard conversation sometimes, aren't we? And many times God says, stay, stay put. In fact, in the relational world, in the church world, there's really only a, a small good number, and there are some good numbers or good reasons, but a small number of good reasons to flee to Egypt. Not a ton. But we may starve, God. My children's bellies might go empty. And God says, stay put. How many times do we run from famine? From hard situations? Because we say, we believe God is present and will work in it, but we don't actually obey and trust and live accordingly. That happens, doesn't it? And God knows it's hard, so what does he do? He reminds Isaac, he says, I'm here. Even if you stay, I, I am here. My presence, my blessing is, is here. Let's look at the second implication. If the first one was stay put, when you stay put, God's presence and blessing 
should engender, bring about in you faithful, courageous living. Because that's what God was calling Isaac to. Faithful, courageous living. God appears two times to Isaac in this passage. Twice he appears to They're called theophanies, we call them. They're appearances of God. And twice he appears to Isaac in this one story. He says, don't go anywhere because I will be with you, my presence. And my presence with you is a presence that blesses. It's not just that I happen to be everywhere. I'm here with you in a special way. I'll take care of you. Did you hear it even ups the ante? I'll give you all these lands, all these lands, enlarging the language there of the land. And your offspring, Isaac, your offspring, your kids, Jacob and Esau, they'll be okay. They will be okay. And the promises of the covenant I made with your father Abraham, like like the stars of the heaven, you, your people, will bless all the nations of the world. All of them. And, And Isaac, Abraham obeyed. He did. Oh, sure, he had some really bad moments, but in his best, he obeyed. And because of that obedience, Isaac, we're still here communicating. My presence is here. I'm here with you. The temptation to run would have been immense for Isaac and understandable. Well, don't you agree? It would be understandable. He's courting the starvation of his children by staying. In a foreign land, no less, where he's an immigrant with no power, really, much of anything at that time of his own. Most of us, when we had the fires, uh, it was, I guess it was like a year ago, most of us got in our cars, didn't we? And we got out, we fled, we got out, we picked up and we, we ran rather than stay with the potential coming fire and, of, and for sure the smoke. And that was wise. It was wise. But here God says, Be like Abraham at his best when he obeyed me because there's blessing in that. Stay put, Isaac. Stay where you are. Why? Because I am with you. Right now he's here. My presence is with you. It's not just this detached thing, Isaac. It's not just this cold doctrine of omnipresence that I'm everywhere. Oh, yes, that's true, Isaac. But my presence for you is intimate. It's loving. It's rich. It's full. It's providing. And it's all-powerful. Stay put, Isaac. You know what it did? It engendered a faithful courageous living in Isaac, and if you're aware of that kind of presence in your life, it will in you too. Faithful, courageous living. But isn't you think about it, there's so much famine in our own lives. There is. There's a lot of things we lose that feel like life to us. But we betray our lack of faithful, courageous trust in God's blessing when we respond in disobedient ways. That's when we show we're not trusting that intimate presence. When Christians, maybe as an example, treat others with contempt or anger or malice or rage or revenge because we think they've they've taken my feast. They've taken my feast. Whatever that is for you. Whatever that is. They've left me in a famine. Maybe it's harsh words on social media. We've had some Christians struggle with that in our town. 
condescending angry tones by some Christians at school board meetings. We've had that too. Leaving a spouse because you aren't feeling it anymore. Not forgiving because she stole my pride, my sense of of goodness and righteousness. Wow, I can't believe my pastor struggles with that too. We're out of here. All kinds of things, can't there be? Temptations to, to flee, to let's go, let's get to greener pastures, let's get out of here, let's escape this famine for some other place. And even upon the heels of this visitation now, Isaac, this visitation from God, this renewal of the promises of blessing, what does Isaac do? He betrays his lack of trust by repeating the very same sin of his father, Abraham. He betrays his wife. Again, this is the third time now in Genesis we've seen this. You would think one family would learn, don't you? How many times do our families make the same mistakes? I mean, I guess a lot, right? I mean, if we're honest, a lot. We have our own habitual, don't we, sins, our own proclivities, our own, each and every one of you has your own natural draw towards certain sins. And for whatever reasons, for Abraham and Isaac, they like to abandon their wife. He betrays his wife like Abraham did in Genesis 12 when he was in Egypt, and he does it again in Genesis 20, Abraham does, and, and it possibly in Genesis 20 with the same Abimelech. Think about that. This guy's like, again? Again? I, we went through this already with, with your dad. Possibly. It could be his son or grandson, but um, he would have probably known the story from Genesis 20. Probably would have made some waves. Hey, guys, she's my sister. Not my wife. Nothing, nothing to look at here. She's my sister. So, so instead of faithful, courageous living after this visitation and presence of the Lord, it's fear and it threatens the blessing of God. He's afraid they will kill him if they find out she is his wife. So what does he do? He betrays his lack of trust of God, the God who is really present, by saying, yeah, uh, she's my sister, not, not my wife, endangering her like Sarah was brought into the harem. That could have happened here, too. Why did he do it? Why do you think he did it? But why do we do any sin? I put pride there, I think. You think, well, wait a minute. It kind of looks like fear to me. He was afraid to die. Yeah, sure, that's true. He was afraid to die. But why? I think maybe pride. Maybe Isaac's thoughts went something like this. Well, look, we're the chosen family. Rebecca, we're the chosen family. And I'm the patriarch of that family, Rebecca. There is no way we can survive without me. I mean, how is that possible? We're the chosen family, and I'm the father of the family, so let's talk about this. How will God's promise of a Savior come to pass if I'm gone and the family falls apart? What are we going to do? Maybe his fear was based on an oversized sense of self-importance. It's possible. He was not seeing that everything he had, including God's presence, was based entirely upon grace, not his good fatherly standing, not his merit as the leader of a large family. He was not seeing that. Okay, God is near. Yeah, I get it. But, but, but he, he, he needs a little help, Rebecca. So you're my sister. Sorry. What is pride here? It's selling out your wife to save your life. Sure, it's fear, but it's based on some, I think, kind of pride. And the reason was Isaac couldn't imagine a world where he wasn't present in it. He couldn't imagine it. 
a world where he's absent because he felt possibly maybe he'd contributed or maybe he was so responsible now for this great cosmic plan of redemption through this chosen family. His competence, his presence, not God's, was what his family really needed. Until he acknowledged God's gracious presence, he was afraid and proud. How do we know? Verse 25, what does he end up doing? When God appears again, he ends up bowing down and worshiping and and setting up an altar and and humbling himself before the Lord. When he finally gets it, that, that in humility, that God, you've provided the food, you've provided the protection, you've provided the water. I'm just your servant. Pride is at the root of most of our fleeing. Pride is at the root of most of our fleeing. I cannot be around these kind of people. I am better than this, right? I don't deserve to be slighted. I'm gone. I deserve more recognition. You can take this job and shove it. I can't forgive her. I will look so weak if I ask for her forgiveness and so broken. They're all looking at me. They're all all judging me. Self-absorbed pride. I'm worried even. Our worry even. Do you know that? Our worry is even based on pride. Why? Because you know how best life should go and when it doesn't, it's out of control. Only when you see God's presence intimate presence, and trust it as an act of grace, not earned, will you trust it in a way that acts in faithful, courageous, obedient living? It's incredible here in this story, but a pagan chastises the man of God for his actions there. Did you catch that? For his lack of faith. He looks out the window and he sees Isaac and Rebecca laughing. And what the author's really getting at there is they were laughing in some kind of way that you wouldn't do with your actual sister. Something was going on there that was a little bit too intimate, a little bit too close, a little bit too... You don't laugh like that with your sister. He sees it and he goes out and, 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 and grabs him. What are you doing? You see, the world is watching us. The world is watching God's people always. Whether you know it or not, they're watching in Canby. It's a small town. Most people kind of know who the church people are, especially at leadership levels and important positions and business leaders and school stuff. They're watching. They're watching. And when they do, when they do, How will we live? Will it be with faithful integrity? Will it be with obedience? Will it be with trusting God even in the midst of loss? Will we live not only as if he's spatially present, but as if he's personally present in the midst of famines? Let that presence dominate our daily life as we live. That's the difference. That's the difference maker between fleeing and staying put in faithful courage with God's presence to bless and protect us regardless of the famine he asks you to stay put in. What's so incredible is this sneaky act of Isaac in this story follows up with even more blessing. Let's look at the third implication. God's blessing 
will be both attractive and a repellent in your life. God's blessing will be both attractive and a repellent in your life. We read in verses 12 to 16 that God, he, so, he, so he does this horrible thing. And you don't really even, you get a comment on it, I guess, through Abimelech. But right on the heels of it, it's all this blessing. God pours out blessing in riches and possessions and, and flocks and herds. And the Philistines, so much so that in verse 14 says, they envied him. They began to envy this man, Isaac. So here's the, here's the catch. During a famine, Isaac's storehouses are exploding. They're filling up. They're overflowing now. So what do they do? They vandalize his property. That's what they do. They go find the wells that his father had dug up, and, and they fill them with dirt so he can't get the water, and then they kick him out. Get out of here. You're, just, you're more powerful than us now, Isaac. Get out of here. It's a strange thing to have the work of God in your life and see the reaction of those around you. You ever had that happen? There's just something going on, working, watching the interaction of people around you and the different responses to how you respond to God's work. On the one hand, there's something really attractive about the gospel. When it breaks into somebody's life, there's something really attractive about that when it comes into the life and you begin to overflow with joy and an otherworldly confidence, not in yourself. They begin to uh, uh, just... Uh, seep forgiveness and mercy and, and love, that can be really attractive. What happened to you? You're different. Something's different about you. Yeah? But on the other hand, the Christian's also someone who calls the entire world to exclusive repentance and faith in one way. One Savior, one Lord, one baptism, one, one faith. Not, not many, but one. So there's both an attraction and a repellent to the gospel in your life, to people. And wisdom, which in our story is the assurance of God's presence in an intimate way, wisdom gives you the, the mind to know how to respond to both. Both the attraction and the repellent. It was the same with Jesus. Think about that. People were always flocking to him. What makes this guy tick? What can he give me? What can I, what can I, I need to figure him out. So they were, they were attracted to him, and yet at the same time, they were always chasing him to throw stones at him, push him off cliffs, cliffs and they ultimately end up crucifying him. He was both an attractive and repellent at the same time. Are you ready to live like that? <laughs> That's what God's called the Christian too. When there's blessing and he's in your life and presence, it's both attractive and repellent. And the opposition here with Isaac grows as he finds wells, as he finds a, what does it say there, a, a spring water, which is even a better well than just a normal well. And in patience to the opposition, what does he do? Moves on to another well. Okay, that one's contested. I will, we'll find another one that's contested until he finally finds one that is uncontested, that they don't fight for, and he settles in Beersheba. And again, God gives him more promises and a promise of his presence to help him overcome opposition. And this is absolutely necessary for all of us. It's the fourth implication of God's presence, that we need to camp on the promises and presence of God to overcome opposition when we are repellent to people. 
when you do have a famine. You camp upon the promises and presence of God. Look at verse 23 with me through 25. Let me read those again to us. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him. This is the second appearance. Appeared to him in the same night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. Not only that, as I'm with you, the verse goes on, and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So what did he do? He built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord there, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug another well. So God appears again and says, remember me, Isaac. Remember me. Camp on these promises. What do you know? What have you heard? What do you believe? I'm the same God of your father Abraham. Don't be afraid. What are you afraid of? When are you tempted most to flee and run from responsibility or relationship or duty or opportunity? He says, don't be afraid. Your family is safe and will grow. We have to let God's presence dominate our life. Not just the um, the general omniscience of God being everywhere, but dominate you personally with his presence daily, moment by moment. Not just some general belief, but a true knowing that he's near, he's providing, he's caring, he's sovereign, he is all sufficient for every need. Don't fear, he says, Isaac. Don't fear. What did Jesus do? every time he was in trouble. He's God in flesh. And yet every time he's in trouble, what does he do? He runs out to the deserted place, out to the desert to pray, to commune with God's presence. He too needed the reminder, son, I'm here. I'm here. And when Isaac's faith deepens as he trusts God's providing presence, what does he do? He sinks his tent stakes in even deeper. He sinks them in, he pitches his tent, he puts it down, okay, we're staying, we're trusting, we're here, we're digging another well because this is where we're staying. When humans are unsure about something, when we are afraid or worried, what do we do? What do we tend to do? Yes, we can pray, yes, we should do that, but a lot of times we do something else. We go and we find the experts. What do the experts say? This is a big problem. This is a big famine. This is a big deal. What do the experts say? We've been flooded by experts the past couple of years, haven't we? (laughs) Flooded by experts. One expert says this, another says the exact opposite. Think about that. And guess what? There's been no comfort in that. That's why we're all so anxious and freaking out, because we've got experts that say this, we've got experts that say that, and they contradict each other. And there's no comfort in that. So you know what we end up doing? We're tempted to go and seek out the experts that reinforce our own opinion that we already have to alleviate our fears. We've seen it time and time again these last couple years, and every one of us has done it. Time and time again. But you can't do that with God. you got to go directly to Him, the actual God, The God of the Bible, his presence, his closeness, his truth, 
because he doesn't contradict himself. There's no contradiction there. And if we don't let the Word of God define you in your life, what do we end up doing? We end up creating an expert that's going to tell us what we want to hear. A God that never contradicts our choices, never contradicts our life, never asks us to stay put in a famine. We create an expert that tells us what we want to hear. That's actually not a God. That's an idol. It's not a God. Do you want to stand firm when opposition comes, as it did for Isaac? Only the Word of God will give you and His presence in that, those promises, when you camp upon them. Only that will give you and I the courage to stand and stay, even if it means suffering, even if it means in famine, staying put and camping upon His presence and promises. Because in that, you do have a God who can contradict you, who can challenge you, and ask you to stay put in that famine and trust him when they take your wells, when something dries up. But there's a fascinating twist at the end of this story. The fascinating twist is you see great growth in Isaac. Abimelech has a change of mind. He kicked Isaac out, so much so that Isaac says, you hate me. You, you've hated me. He has a change of mind that now that things are working out pretty good for Isaac, right? Well, now he's doing pretty good. We better go and let's, 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 let's approach this guy again. Here's the, here's the story. He goes and they, they've kicked him out, but now Abimelech goes to find him and he sees the material wealth that Isaac has and he just assumes, wow, God must be with this guy. Look at all his wealth. And so he goes and wants to figure things out with him and make a treaty. And so look at 27. We'll read that through 29. Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said, then why did he come to me? Seeing that you hate me, You've, you sent me away, you kicked me out. And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm. Hey, remember, just as we've not, we didn't touch you, we've not done to you anything, we've only done good to you, and we sent you away in peace, and now you're, you're the blessed of the Lord. This was Isaac's moment. He now had the upper hand. Oh, revenge would be so sweet in this moment. You hated me. You kicked my family out of our home. Oh, revenge, sweet revenge, right? <laughs> See, the tables have turned, Abimelech. You're coming to me now. I've got the upper hand. I've got the food. I've got the water. Come on, come on, come on. Let's see where this goes, Abimelech. That would have been the ancient cultural thing to do. In a world of warring tribes and power, would you give that up? No. But what does he do? He graciously makes a feast and lets them lodge at his house and makes an oath of peace with them. This is only possible when you've been transformed by grace. It's only possible when you've been transformed by grace and you realize that the upper hand doesn't really actually mean anything in the grand scheme of things to be the powerful one. It's only when you've been transformed by grace that you can build bridges with those who watch God at work in your life. And that's our fifth implication. 
when the world sees God at work in your life, don't finally get revenge and see, ha, told you, should have believed like me. No, build a bridge to them. Build a bridge to fellowship as Isaac did here. He, he, he rolls out the red carpet for them, feasts with them, lets them lodge and says, you know what, let's have peace forever between us. Only a man of grace can do that. A man of power and might would have snuffed them out in that moment. But Isaac's been transformed by the presence and promises of God, like we can too. You know, today we can't determine, please don't determine God's presence in your life by material things. This is a little bit different time, different culture, different economy as God worked with his people, setting them up, making sure they last and survive. A little bit different time. You can't look at God's presence in your life by material things. But as they look at your life today and watch you, people in the world, it's even more profound. What do people see when you navigate the loss of a job, the loss of health, the loss of a loved one? What do people see in you when you're going through an unexpected trial? What do people see in you when you're in the recovery room? When we get put under the microscope of a famine, what do they see in you? Do you use it as a time to build bridges of relationships because people are watching you? Or have you forgotten maybe so much of God's presence that you're so self-absorbed in those moments that the only thing you can see is the famine right in front of your eyes rather than the God of the famine working through it? The faithful promises and presence of that God who's near us. You know, Jesus came really near to us on earth, didn't he? He came really near. But think about it before he came to earth. And he looked down upon it. It must have looked like an overwhelming, massive famine to him. The place he made, the place he set up to have relationship with his creatures, now there was, it's full of, of death and hurt and anger and bloodshed and stealing and filling in the springs of water and broken relationships and the absolute rejection of God. That's the world Jesus looked down upon. Talk about famine at all levels, spiritual, physical, cosmic famine. But what does he do? Does he cut and run? Does he cut and run? I'm done with this world. No, he runs to it. And he's born as a baby. The Gospel of John in the beginning lays this out so beautifully. And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us in this famine-ravaged world. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John uses the word there, dwelt among us. You know what that means? It means, it really is saying he tabernacled among us. You know what Jesus did? He pitched his tent in this famine-destroyed world pitched his tent. He says, I'm going to enter into the famine. I'm going to enter into the drought. I'm going to enter in to be there and even put on flesh so that I can feel the drought too. So I can feel the famine and experience it too. Wow. And he came really near to those disciples, didn't he? He lived with them. He ate with them. Slept in the same tents 
with them, talked with them, taught them, loved them. He stayed put in the presence for them and the famine. And I'm sure he was tempted. I'm sure he was tempted at times in his humanity now to cut and run. We know he had to get out to the fields to pray, to pull up the tent stakes where he was tabernacling and flee, just to get out of this this place. But he didn't. He did not do that. He stayed. And as he stayed, when do you think, think about this now, We'll close this question. When do you think Jesus felt famine the most? When do you think he felt the famine at its fullest weight? When he went through the famine of losing his father's presence on the cross. Not tent stakes now, but nails. Nails that held him there, that kept him there. Matthew 27, he was there on that cross and they passed by and they derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Even there, they're tempting him. Flee from the famine. Flee from the famine. Pull the nails out. Come down off the cross. Get yourself out of here. Why go through this? Why put yourself through this if you can save yourself? Why go through the famine? Flee and come down from the cross, Jesus. And how easy would it have been for him to call a legion of angel armies to come down and just just zap them all right there in that moment? He could have done it. But he didn't, did he? He cried out and stayed. It is finished. He didn't flee the famine. And he could have. So that in your famine... God could be near you with his presence. He stayed put in the famine so that in yours, God could be absolutely right next to you, with you, in a blessing, providing presence. That's what he did. For his glory to a watching world. Let's pray. Jesus, make your presence real to us. By the power of your spirit, Let us live under the weight and in the joy of that daily. And use the story of Isaac to draw us closer even now to your presence as we sing to the Savior, the risen Lord, who stayed put in the famine so that you could come near in ours. In Christ's name, amen.